Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's a great day for a podcast. Once again, here he is, John Oakley. I was reading in Post Media News earlier today, very, very interesting, trenchant article about the story surrounding the South Riverdale Community Health Center and the folks in the immediate vicinity, uh, the needles and the damage done inside one neighborhood's battle over unsafe injection, crime, and murder. Rather extensive piece, but boy, it spells out uh, the tribulations faced by some of the folks in that vicinity to get accountability. Derek Finkel has written the piece, and he's joined us here on The Oakley Show at 640 Toronto. Derek, good to have you back on board. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, John. It's just nice to talk to you again. Well, you know, uh, citing this as a battle, uh, tell us how it became a battle or if it's an ongoing battle. What's the situation there? Well, it's been a battle for a while. Uh, just just by way of background, the safe injection site opened uh, in the South Riverdale Community Health Center, which I live across the street from. It's on Queen Street in Leslieville. And uh, it opened in late 2017. And um, I would say by about, you know, 2019, it started to get pretty bad. And um, there were you know, people using, there were, you know, discarded needles all over the place. We started to see drug dealing in a place where we'd never seen really any any drug activity before. And over the pandemic, it, it got it got even worse. And uh, there's about 100 children that live on my street alone. I live uh, on the, uh, across the street on the, on the east side of the building. And a half block from the building in the other direction is a, is a junior uh, public school that has about 475 children in it. There's, there's actually about 1,000 children that go to schools and daycares within 100 meters if you drew a straight line from that building. And during the pandemic, the battle, to get to your question about the battle, the battle really started um, in earnest, uh, you know, during the pandemic when um, the children on our street were forced to kind of use the lanes behind their houses where their little garages are to ride their bikes around and, you know, and, and play ball and stuff because, you know, the parks during the pandemic were closed. There were no splash pads. There was no school. And, uh, and this, the, the children essentially kind of collided with what was starting to turn into basically an open-air drug emporium uh, outside of the, uh, the health center, the, the safe injection site. And I went in and spoke to the director of the safe injection site at the time, and I explained to her, like, I don't know how this, how can you be allowing this to go on uh, with so many children and so and and uh, a school so close by? And the answer she gave me was, uh, well, the pandemic has been really difficult for society's most vulnerable. And I pointed out to her that society's most vulnerable were actually the children riding around on their bicycles, uh, trying to weave around um, unresponsive bodies and people fighting each other and assaulting each other and leaving needles everywhere and selling drugs and everything else. So um, they basically told us they couldn't get any security. There was no funding for security. And so this spring, the residents of our street, we finally decided to take matters into our own hands and we started 
a, a Google Sheet uh, form where people could uh, collect all the data about the activity they were seeing um, in and around the center. And uh, we had a meeting with the center. We presented that data. There were 136 incidents of all the things I just described um, put in a very professional deck to the CEO. Um, we, we pressed him and his senior management to do something about it over the next few weeks. They kind of dawdled around and seemed half interested. And um, we had a meeting three days before um, Carolina hubner Macrod was shot, basically right on, on the right where all the drug dealing was going on. And um, we told them, we asked them, what has to happen? Does somebody have to die? Uh, does a child have to die for you guys to do something? Three days later, a mother of two children died. And um, I'll leave it there. But um, we learned a lot of things in the aftermath of that shooting that we didn't really know about the center before in terms of how it was supposed to operate and how what its relationship was with the police and what it was telling the police to do and not do. So I'll let you, I've talked a lot, I'll let you take it from here if you want. (laughs) I was going to say, I'll pick up on that point uh, here in a moment. Derek Finkel is with us. He's an investigative journalist and a writer and uh, for the past 15 years was living right there in Leslieville across the street from the South Riverdale Community Health Center. And uh, we know the story of the 44-year-old woman, Ms. Mukarat, who was killed because drug dealers allegedly firing at each other in the middle of the afternoon. She's on her way to get a sandwich. I mean, that's just unconscionable. But what uh, Derek is outlining is this urban decay uh, started much earlier than that. But in the immediate aftermath, uh, the accountability is what's really drawn into question here. I know you're frustrated in the various meetings and consultations you had with the operators. Uh, So, again, this is kind of the open book. You can go on the rant right now. You know, subsequent to that July 7th murder, uh, how did uh, you gain a new perspective as to, you know, which maybe explained a whole lot of the run-up to this from 2017 to present? Yeah, well, the first thing I'll say uh, before I explain what I learned is that things changed uh, very quickly. The, 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 the third meeting we had with the center was uh, the Monday after the shooting, which was on a Friday. So it was like the first business day, and it had been set up in advance. And all of a sudden, the meeting changed. All of a sudden, there were uh, four board members of the health center there. We had our member of parliament there. We had the superintendent of 55 division there. Um, you know, it was it was a, you know it, it was just a completely different setup because all of a sudden, you know, people realized they had to take the thing we were telling them to take seriously seriously. And so, I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that we learned, I think the main thing, and I try to get at this in the piece I wrote, is one of the things that I don't think we really understood as neighbors of, you know, because when the safe injection site opened, you know, we're a pretty progressive, educated, uh, compassionate lot. And we sort of naively, I think, uh, believed that all of the use was going to be happening inside the center and it was going to be with safe needles and supervised and all that stuff. But in the end, what really happened was, you know, by 2019, the center created a a policy that was based on some research it did with people who use harm reduction services. And what the research showed was that if if there's too much of a police presence in and around the safe injection site, it discourages the harm reduction users from, you know, seeking harm reduction. So basically what started happening was that the staff of of the safe injection site started disinviting the police, sometimes in a really adamant 
surprisingly uh, tenacious way from being anywhere around the, the, the perimeter of their building. And what that did over time was that it allowed drug dealers to know that A, they had an audience, and B, the police weren't coming to, to catch them or to mess with them because they had this, what's called a non-enforcement boundary. There was a policy of a non-enforcement boundary around their building. And so, you know, for years, and this existed since 2019, all through the pandemic, and um, that the police weren't really allowed to police. And that might have been great for the 50 or so, um, you know, unique visitors that use the safe injection site every month in our community, but it was an unmitigated disaster for everybody else, including myself and especially uh, Carolina's family. Um, because I really believe that that policy had a lot to do with the fact that we had rampant drug dealing and rampant drug use in an area where prior to, you know, 2018, we did not have, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that there was no drug use in Leslieville. There was, just like there's drug use in Cabbage Town and there's drug use in Leaside and there's drug use in the beaches. But, but, but we didn't have such a wickedly concentrated, um, you know, sort of drug emporium, as I call it. And, and the, thing, the thing about this, this safe injection site is that it was, in a way, you know, in retrospect, it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It basically birthed the thing that it was designed to, to, uh, to you know, cut back on or prevent uh, or alleviate. And, it, it, like, it created a problem where, where one didn't really exist before. And, um, and so I think that's what's, you know, what's really frustrating about it. And, and I think in dealing with the center uh, since then, you know, um, a lot of what they have done has been about, you know, damage control. I mean, they never spoke to the media after the, the murder. They issued a, 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 a statement from the board that just did not acknowledge that, that the residents had been, had aired serious safety concerns um, prior to the shooting like for a long time, for years. And, uh, and they've hired, you know, a, you know, a mediator for their own committee, and they've invited a whole bunch of harm reduction proponents that so that they can pad around in their own safe, comfortable waters instead of, and they've kind of pulled away from our residents um, uh, group um, who who's really done a lot uh, in a short amount of time to help improve some safety. I mean, the safe injection site has, they've, they've done some things. I don't want to say they've done nothing. They hired um, a security outfit called One Community Solutions that works at some other safe injection sites. It's helped a little bit. Um, but ultimately, I think what we're really talking about here is does the community support a safe injection site less than 100 meters from 1,000 children going to daycares and schools every day? And especially since the province, uh, the, pro the provincial guidelines since 2018 have said that they should be 600 meters from schools and daycare. So, you know, if they were to put it somewhere nowadays, it wouldn't be where it is. And I, I think that, um, uh, and also Leslieville has just changed dramatically in the last mm -hmm. few years. I don't think that Leslieville would even be chosen today based on the criteria um, from, you know, when they were doing the feasibility studies more than 10 years ago. I mean, Leslieville is... Is, is, is probably five times has five times the number of children that it used to. So, anyway, um, I, it, it's been it's been very frustrating. I, I wrote that piece, uh, you know, uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, the what happened was was enraging, and um, it didn't have to happen. And you know, the Supreme Court of, of Canada ruled in uh, 2011 
uh, on you know in a, in a case involving Insight, which was Vancouver's um, safe injection site, which which predated Toronto's by quite a long time. Um, the, the Supreme Court ruled that harm reduction cannot come at the expense of of of, of public safety, and I think that's really what happened here. And the other thing is, the, in 2016, the year before these all the three the first three safe injection sites opened in Toronto, um, the you know Eileen Villas, uh, the, the the medical officer of the city, uh, her predecessor. Um, wrote an implementation guide, and it says right in the, impl- in the implementation guide, it, in black and white, that, that the, the South Riverdale Center was, was required to have and enforce uh, a, a non, um, uh, no zero tolerance drug selling policy on the, in and around its building. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and that just never happened. And that's what well, they. That's what they sold us, you know, and, 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 and they were also supposed to have a glowing rapport with the Toronto Police Service. Well, I don't think a glowing rapport is telling the police to buzz off. Right. You know, uh, Derek, it's a lengthy piece, but it's very detailed, and it really uh, mirrors the frustration, uh, the official apathy, the obfuscation, the interference run by proponents, uh, even the ineffectual response from various levels, including your counselor, Paula Fletcher. Uh, I don't think that she comes off uh, in any kind of exemplary fashion. But at the end of the day, the takeaway uh, from what I get is that this, in your neighborhood anyway, is a failed social experiment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and frankly, back in 2016, when they had the community consultation process for these things, there were a bunch of people who pointed this out. They said, this this is really a social experiment. I mean, they never even cited what the reason was for this safe injection site being in Leslieville. I mean, they didn't cite any any uh, drug data, like, you know, drug use data for Leslieville. They stuck it there because, as they admitted in their feasibility study, they, they, legally they need community support, as per the Supreme Court. You have to have community support to have a safe injection site. And, so, and community support is like not, not a huge bar to get over, but, but they knew, the city knew they couldn't put it in more affluent um, family-type neighborhoods like, you know, Leaside or the beaches. So they, they, they threw it in what back in 2012 was downtrodden Leslieville. And, um, and, it, you know, and I think it was an experiment. I don't really think this uh, health center is equipped, and I don't think the management is equipped to manage something like this. I mean, if you're going to try to provide public safety, you have to have security. You can't tell people we don't have money for security when you put a safe injection site uh, half a block from a massive public school. And um, Derek, I've got to let you go on that note, but I mean, uh, it's... A worthwhile read for any who have, uh, you know, considered that this might come to their own neighborhoods. Again, uh, the needles and the damage done. It's in post media. Derek Finkel, investigative journalist and writer, 15 years. He's lived across the street from the South Riverdale Community Health Center. And he explains everything in detail as to uh, what the, the residents there in the immediate proximity had to confront and continue to do so. Derek, I appreciate it very, very much. All the best to you. Thanks, John. You take care. And Bye. you. Listen to the John Oakley Show live each weekday afternoon from 3 until 6. If you live in the Toronto area, just turn that AM dial to 640 and listen anywhere on Earth 24 hours a day by going to 640toronto.com. Follow on Twitter at AM640Oakley. You've been listening to 
A Curious Cast. New podcasts and shows are debuting all the time. So check back often to see what's new in the Curious Cast Library.